morning, and we will begin. Um, and I will pray for us from Psalm 90. So teach us, Lord, to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servant. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Um, I think we'll, as we begin today, I think we'll look to these psalms. Um, and Psalm 39 happens to be the psalm of the day. So if you follow along in the, uh, the lectionary for daily readings, um, as many do, um, you would be familiar with Psalm 39. It's been the psalm Monday through Wednesday. Um, and then Psalm 90, of course, is always early in the, in the liturgical year, um, the first part of Advent. Um, but these psalms have an awful lot to do with what it is we're going to talk about today. So let's think about them for a minute. So let's work through Psalm 39. Is there someone who would like to read verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 39? I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me, and I mused the fire burned, and I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a clean hand breath, and my lifetime is of nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, say love. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And who would like to read 7 through the end of the chapter? Go for it. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart in the end of the morning. It's a riveting, joyful ending right there. Um, and Psalm 90, which, well, I kind of read part of it. I'll, I'll read more of it. Here And, of course, Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you were God. 
You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. These two psalms deal with limits, um, in, in part. Um, what are some what are some commonalities you see in these psalms as we start thinking about limitations in human existence? Yeah, they both actually ask, like there's a petition here in Psalm 39, make me know my end, what is the measure of my days, right? And, and Psalm 90, teach us to number our days, right? So there's a, an, a request from God um, to that end. And, I mean, both of these are addressed to whom? To God, right? It's... When we enter God's presence, we should be mindful of our limitations, for one thing, as, as, as we'll see. Um, what, are, what are our days like for the Psalms, for both the both psalmists, both David and Moses? Fleeting. Fleeting, Fleeting. yeah. What I like about both of these psalms is the relationship of the writer to God, mm. and the both heart-wrenching. Mm. They're both agonizing for their reality, and then they pour out their honest feelings towards the Father that understands and hears, and mm. I find that very strong. Yeah, I mean, to, the honesty, and, and it's so reflective of the world as we know it, not a world imaginary happy place, right? So that our days are fleeting, troubling, they're like grass. What else, what else characterizes our existence? The sin, <laughs> right? Notice how they both bring up sin and transgression, right? This is part of our life, so this complicates limits, as we'll see. Um, what does the psalmist ask for in relationship to sin and iniquity and transgression? Deliverance. And <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I want to be delivered from that. Okay. For sure. Um, What about this? What? How do they end? Like, what? What is the resolution to these psalms? 
One of them, Psalm 90, right, is, has to do with establishing the work of our hands. What does that mean? Which line was that? The end of Psalm 90. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Because he's saying everything that we do is fleeting, but even mm. so, make it worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. It's like, would there be some lasting something to the to my existence here, right? I mean, I mean it seems a little sobering, but it's true. Like, could there, like, let my, let there be something that lasts, right? Something that's established, and then how does Psalm 39 end? Interestingly, he, he wants God to listen. And then, interestingly, he says, for I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like my father's. Not, that's important because in Deuteronomy 10, the reason that, that God delivers from Egypt is because you're sojourners. Okay, and that's why you behave a particular way to the sojourner because that's how God's character is oriented towards the sojourner. And so he's reminding him, God, I'm a sojourner. Like I'm, I'm the, the kind of person that needs your, who you are and your character to respond a particular way to me. But then there's this look away from me that I may smile again before I depart him and no more. Wow. Like what is the ironic blessing? Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May the Lord turn his face upon you and be gracious unto you. Right, and here he's saying, look away from me. Because the gaze here, he feels like, on God's gaze is one that's causing trouble. Doesn't feel so gracious. Okay. So we, we see some conf- just conflicting things going on in these psalms. Some honesty, but some puzzling things. Um, we don't get resolution all that much, which is important, I think. Um, well, so we're going to talk about limits today because human existence and how we should think about ourselves and the way God thinks about us has to do with, with limitations and with, as we'll see, a no to many things. So let's talk about limits for a minute. How... How are humans limited, or how is creation limited? Think, think Genesis 1, right? The days of creation. How do, how do limits show up in that creation narrative? Time. Okay. So from the get-go, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. Interestingly, um, when when does when does uh, when does time begin on the first day and when does like the sun and moon show up? The fourth day was the <laughs> Yeah, right. So time is not dependent upon sun, moon, right? Uh, which is an important polemic in against pagan worship. Um, but what are the sun and moon and stars for as it relates to time? Yeah, he says that they're they're signs. Yeah, so they 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 there is time, and these things bear witness to that there is time. Okay, um, 
Yeah. What else is what else is limited in the creation narrative? Also, the light was before the sun and the moon was created. Yeah, the light exists before, and the Bible ends that way. Yeah. Right. Uh, the, in the heavenly city, there is no need for the sun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, just the land and sea. Land is separated from sea, right? The the water from the air, right? There's an atmosphere, there's land, and there's sea, there's, yeah. And, and so there's a limited sphere of existence. And plants and animals are placed into specific spheres. Right, so we have the sea creatures and the birds on one day, and then the land animals like the next, right, on the sixth, right? Yeah. God puts limits on Adam and Eve. Okay. Okay, so there's a command that that you don't eat from this tree. Everything else, and he also, what else is limited? I mean, what does he give them for food? Yeah. So there's there's a there's a particular food that's given to them at that point, right? How else? How what other limits show up? Think about more like implied limits. What what happens when you say be fruitful and multiply? So today I had to I had to take care of Henry. Uh, Amory had a work thing early in the morning. Usually I try to work early in the morning, so I had to care for my. So what what happens when you're fruitful and multiply? Automatically you have limits placed on you, right? You get to be with them around them they're dependent upon you there's all, i mean there's just a whole nexus of limitations that comes with reproducing right <laughs> with a community with commitments to uh, a spouse like like right like there are limits that are implied in that um i mean right off the from day one you have an implied something Right, which is fascinating. It says, "Let there be light," and there was light. And he separated it from what? Darkness. Yeah, but did he create darkness? He Doesn't say that he created darkness, but by creating light, darkness is now evident. <laughs> and he lives in darkness, as, as we'll see. Yeah. So there's an implied thing going on here about that. So, so we, we understand we get all sorts of of limits in human existence just by virtue of creation. I think, I think Sabbath is an important one too. What does Sabbath tell us about limits? What, yeah, we need to cease because God says, I'm done creating. I mean, could God have created more? Yeah. I mean, yeah. God, I mean, never ask, could God? I mean, yeah, God can do whatever. The interesting about the Sabbath is he had told uh, Adam to rest, and he didn't, Adam didn't rest. Yeah, we could see, we could get in all sorts of things, uh, interesting things about Sabbath, right? Um, yeah, we need to cease from our labor, and we need to enjoy, we need to recognize that we can, we can enjoy. I believe there's times and seasons when we should do things like that. What about, um, what about the fall, though? Genesis 3 creates some challenges. What, what sort of limits enter the world because of the fall. Work becomes toil. Okay, so there's a... There's not a care. I mean, you know, they were mm-hmm. caring for the garden. Right. Now it's toil. Yeah, and there's a... It's hard. It's going gonna, it's gonna to kick back at you when you try to, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else? What else is there limited by the fall? Death. Yeah, Death. 
and that's complicated. Like, yeah, in what way does death enter because of the fall? Separation right? from yeah. presence. Yeah, there's a separation, right? Okay, so there's a limitation of access to God in particular ways. There's, there's a limitation of harmony with, with a spouse or with a, really other humans in general. Uh, there's all sorts of things. We get that. What, what other sort of limits, I don't know, come to mind that we experience as human beings? Hmm? What sort of, what are we always coming up against, I guess you might say? in our humanly existence. Sin. <laughs> I mean, sin is just inherently limited. It's interesting, like, we don't really know how much sin, like, affects the limitations that we encounter, right? Because we don't have a, a, we don't really have a frame of reference to think about without sin. And the Bible doesn't really give us one. Like, the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time talking about that on, on purpose, right? Because we're, it's kind of actualist. This is the world we live in. And how much we, how much the fall introduces new limits or complicates existing limits, we're not entirely sure, honestly. Um, I, think, I think the other limits that, we, that show up... Um, Include things like pain and suffering and grief. And we, I liked, I think, I think I liked the way that a, a lot of theologians talk about this in terms of God's no. So, so God in creating has said yes to all sorts of things. And when he says yes, there's automatically a no. Okay, so um, God gives life, and he gives a lifespan. That's, that's a yes of God. But when he gives a lifespan, what is, what is the implied no? There's an it, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that God actively has to say no. <laughs> But he's, he has said yes. He, he, he sustains all life, right? And there's an, when he says yes to this period of time, there's a no to other periods of time. Um, and that's a sad thing. Like, that's, that's one that we really wrestle with, right? Uh, if you've ever buried someone, right? Um, what else are implied no's? What does God say yes to that there's a flip side of that? What has God not willed into existence? All sorts of things. Like evil <laughs> would be maybe up there. Um, but all the things that we do to one another, all the things we experience, the trauma of our Existence aren't things that we would necessarily would say God brings into existence, but they're things that are implied 
um, because, for instance, uh, if he gives us, um, he, he wants to be loved by, by free agents, by agents with choice, right? Well, by doing that, God allows for us to say no. Um, and all the things that come with that, right? And those are tragic things. Um, how do, <laughs> let me ask you this. Is the world as it exists good? That's, that's a hard one, and it's good that, that we wrestle with that, right? Because the goodness of creation is not apparent. But the goodness of creation, though, is something that we learn about from God's self-revelation. That actually, why, why would we say that creation is good? Why is the way things are a good thing? And that's not to call everything that exists good in of itself, but the way the world is, with all its grief and sorrow and loss and pain, as well as joy, God, why would we say that that's good? This was created by God. Yeah, because we have a good creator, right? So, Again, those things aren't, that's not apparent by looking at the world. We don't look at the world and, and, and go through life and say, wow, there must be a good creator because, man, everything is amazing, right? Because then what happens, like a, a war hits or a natural disaster hits or whatever, and how can that be good? And the only way you can know that that is good is by God's own self-revelation that he is a good creator. Um... And even the you know even the limits are good, not just the created limits, but all the the no's that God has said through His yes are good because they're governed by God's providence. So I mean, just to be real personal, like I mean, it, it, you know, most of you know, Amory and I lost um, pregnancy earlier this year, and um, or at the end, and I'm sorry, end of last year. And little twins, like, you know, these these little babies God said yes to, right, for, you know, 12 weeks. But that yes for 12 meant no for after that, right? I don't like that. <laughs> like, that's not good in of itself. But if God is good, then that, even that is good, right? And so I think we have to wrestle a bit with those things. Um, we can't acknowledge God as, our Lord, as Lord over our joys, as sort of responsible for our joys, if we don't acknowledge him as Lord over our loss. Okay. Um, Job, Job is, of course, a great place to turn for some of these things. But think about how, like, Job has a statement in Job 10. It says, your hands fashioned and made me, so you're the, you're the creator, but now you have destroyed me altogether. 
right? He's just, he cries out in this, right? Like, you've made me, but now you're destroying me. And he doesn't like that. But then a few chapters later, he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my way, right, before him. Like, he's, he's, he's going back and forth, and he's like, but, he, you know, there's this acknowledgement of, of the lordship of, of God over all these things. So I think what this does is the limitations of creaturely existence, like, they cast a disorienting shadow on us. We live lives um, in shadow and darkness because of that. So much of life is shrouded in mystery, that we can't understand. And we can, you know, we live lives. It's, it's maybe harder, especially if we're more affluent and we're, we're in a, you know, our lives are not that bad off compared to maybe a lot of people's lives. But even so, we, we put on a good show often for lives that are quite disoriented, um, that are desperate, that are full of loss and sorrow. So darkness or shadow is a part of creaturely existence. And this is true, first of all, because it's a part of the way God is towards us. When, so when we see light and darkness in Genesis 1, when's the next time we see darkness in the scripture? Do you know? It's Genesis 15. What happens in Genesis 15? So in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, does, makes a covenant with him. But what happens in 15? 15 is the sun goes down, the Yeah, so 15 is when we see uh, God doing the covenant, <coughs> excuse me, covenant cutting, right, with a ceremony where he has the animals. And he kills. And what happens is God shows up and deep darkness falls on Abraham. Right? That's associated with it. And then how does God appear as he walks between the pieces of the animals by himself? What is he? What's his form that he takes? Remember? A smoking pot and a fiery torch. Right? So when, when, then when do you see darkness next? Uh, in the next is 10 um, when you have a uh, plague on Egypt. And what's going on in the plagues in Egypt as we're doing on Sunday mornings, we're seeing this. God is revealing himself. Pharaoh says, I don't know who you are. God says, let me show you who I am. <laughs> right? And, and there's, this, is, this is shown through these plagues. And one of them is darkness. Then when you see it again is Exodus 20. What happens in Exodus 20? Mount Sinai, Moses draws near to God, who is in thick darkness and gloom, <laughs> it says. And there's smoke and cloud and all this sort of thing, right? Um, this, this imagery goes on and on throughout the scripture. Um, and what happens when the Lord Jesus dies, even? Darkness, darkness falls, right? Now, what is, what is all that meant to convey about God? Why so much dark? And, and interesting, it's with covenants, right? It's when he's coming into special relationship with people that 
that, that interaction is, part of that interaction is characterized by darkness. Why? Important. This is kind of important stuff to know about my God, right? God, God is, I mean, he's inherently unknowable, right? We, we, we can't master knowledge of God, right? He's, he is veiled from us. We don't, we're not on the same plane as God. He's not accessible to us in the same way that other things are accessible, right? And even when he reveals himself to us, we st- we don't we don't get like to the full we can never in fact even comprehend the fullness of who god is right so so god coming in darkness is is particularly important um he's incomprehensible he's inconceivable in, in many ways and so since creation displays the glory of god we can expect darkness to characterize creaturely existence, okay? So our existence, if, we, if, we're, if, exist, if creation at all corresponds to who God is, guess what? Our crea- our, the limits of, our, of ourselves, the boundaries of our existence, the shadow lands of, 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 of the, the loss and the suffering, the things we can't make sense of, that should, that's, that's actually appropriate, for creation and for created reality to be because that's who our creator is. Does that make sense? And of course that's even more complicated by sin. How does how does sin cloud things and shroud things in even more mystery and darkness? It deceives you so it blinds you. Yeah. So it, it has its own further blinding effect, right? Foolish minds became darkened, right? Romans 1, like he says, right? So now, even though God already was not transparent to us, now it becomes even more distant. In fact, part of that's because what do we do is we manufacture gods in our own image in, in something we can access, right? What, is, what, do, the, what do the Israelites do in... Um, in, in Exodus 30 at, at Sinai when they're looking up at Sinai and it's enveloped in clouds and thick darkness and like this tornado of fire, right? And Moses has been up there for a while. What do they do? Make their golden calf. They're like, hey, make us an image, right? Make us something we can get behind because that's, that's not something we're comfortable with, right? And so sin does that. What we do is we make... We make things more accessible, we think, to ourselves, right? And we try to make ourselves more transparent to ourselves as a result of that, right? We try to explain the loss, you know, the pain of our existence, and we can't. And I don't think we're meant to. We're not meant to grasp the boundaries of our own existence. That's why, that's why so much of the Psalms describes who we are as shadow. And of course, the, the biggest shadow that lies on us is that of death, right? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? So that it casts, and like, as we saw in Isaiah on Sunday morning a couple weeks ago, 
um, it casts a veil over the world, right? So these things become very puzzling to us, but and they're meant to be that way. Um, again, the meaning of my own limits, it's not acceptable to me. I, I'm, not meant to necess- I'm not meant to reconcile all that. Like, and and the, the scriptures aren't going to help you reconcile that. Like, it's not going to give you answers for why, why we lost babies prematurely or why loved ones pass away or why there's a, a war going on that doesn't make, right, with senseless violence, right? It did, or why a tornado hit or why a car accident happened, or what... Like, the scripture's not going to, like, spell that out for you, why that happened. It remains a mystery and a shadow, and that's part of what it means to be a creature. Right? That's part of what it means to be given our existence from a good God. So what do we do with that? Okay, do it. So, I mean, that kind of sounds nihilistic, I suppose. So I could, like, just give up altogether. So if I encounter... Like, so, I mean, what, what, what recourse do I have? What do, does the scripture give me then to help me understand, help me, help me have some sort of stability in the midst of that, right? Well, I think, um, I think it's important then for us to understand that covenant um, and creation are closely related. Covenant and Creation, the way things are, okay, with all its complexity, all its loss, all its pain, all its joy, all its sorrow, all that is in carefully, closely related, right? How are covenant and creation related? Covenant being the way God moves towards us in relationship, right? How are covenant and creation related? Okay. Yeah. So they're God's the prime mover in both of those, right? Where does the covenant take place? Within what? <laughs> Within creation. Right? Without without create without creation, you know there's no covenant. Does, does you get that, right? Like, if God doesn't make things, he doesn't have anything to relate to, right? So it's kind of basic in that way that creation exists, right, for the purpose of covenant, right? And so the, the way things are are the way they are in order for God to move towards us in covenant relationship, including all the things we don't understand about the world, right? So it includes God's yes, and it includes God's no. And so how does God then move towards us in covenant? Who gives us any sort of logic, any sort of place to figure out the meaning of the world as we know it? Who? Well, he gave us, so first he gave us law, right? He gave us he gave us some, some way to explicate, like, what's going on to help us navigate that world. Absolutely, right? But that alone is not enough, 
right? I mean, Jesus Christ is the meaning of creation because he's, he is the way in which God has moved towards us in covenant. And how has he done it? How, how, how did he do it? What did he become? Yeah, it's almost like taking like a 4D object and making it 3D. Right? Like you're describing God as someone we can't understand, so he said, here, you can understand this, yeah. this person. Yeah. And fascinatingly, when he comes to us like this, he doesn't, he doesn't like um, move um, independent of all the complexities and darkness and shadows of existence, right? And that's part of what the temptations are communicating. We're, we're in the season of Lent right now, which are, correspond to the, the, the temptation period, the 40 days in the wilderness, right? And what is, what is he tempted to do? Yeah, he's tempted. He's tempted to not be a sinner or not not to be a creature, right? I mean, is there anything wrong with Jesus making turning stones into bread? That's, that's not like a sin, right? Why does why is that a temptation? Why is that something he shouldn't do? Because created beings under the curse don't get to do that. Nothing wrong inherently with it, but if he's going to be fully a creature in the Shadowlands, he doesn't get to go operate ab- apart from that, above, sort of transcend that. Now, he, he does do miracles, right? But who does he do them for? And he doesn't do it for himself, right? Like, his own existence is rooted firmly here. Now, the beautiful thing about him being rooted firmly in our world, in all of its pain and sorrow and all that, is that it has the, the as we'll see, it is the means by which God's no is done away with, right? The yes prevails over the no, right? And we see glimpses, inbreakings of that as he's here. But for him himself, his existence is rooted right here. Um, I, I like... There's if you um, there's a few theologians that are particularly good on this, and, and Karl Barth happens to be one of them, and he says it this way. He says, The secret, the meaning, and the goal of creation is that it reveals the covenant and communion between God and man, and therefore the fulfillment of being as a whole, which is so serious and far-reaching that the word by which God created all things, God himself, becomes as one of his creatures being there himself and thus making his own its twofold determination, its greatness and its wretchedness, its infinite dignity and its infinite frailty, its hope and its despair, its rejoicing and its sorrow. This is what has taken place in Jesus Christ as the meaning and end of creation. His humiliation and exaltation as the Son of God are the self-revelation of God, the Creator." Right? God has not remained above his creation, but he's entered into it. And so Jesus Christ, he doesn't explain the no's. Like, you know, it's interesting how Jesus is here and people ask him questions, like, and he doesn't even, he doesn't really answer. He doesn't explain a whole lot of things, actually, about the reality of the world, how it is. Even in, people ask him about disaster, even. And he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't explain that. And in his own life, 
he lives a life that's characterized by terrible pain and sorrow and loss, right? I mean, even his coming into the world like creates sorrow for a whole group of babies in Bethlehem, right? I mean, there's just, it is conflicting and jarring what happens when Jesus comes into the world, right? Yet, he doesn't do away with those. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't, he plays within those boundaries and he doesn't act as if he somehow knows those things. What, is he, what happens in the garden, right? Like there's a giving over of, of his will, right? To an entrusting, to how does Peter say it? He entrusted himself or he entrusted everything to him who judges justly. And we do the same when we, judge, when we hand ourselves over to a faithful creator, right? That's what Jesus does. And so the covenant itself reveals to us that God is a good creator, right? That we can take him at his word. Um, because I like the way, the way he said that Bart also says that he's made our cause his cause before it could ever be our cause, right? Like what we needed, he took on into himself before we ever needed it, right? That's the beauty. And the creator did that within this particular, in the world as we know it in the world that we can't make sense of if we're really honest about the world as it is. Um, Part of the covenant is also what, the, he covenant, he covenant with some boy, so that some boy has to have a relationship with the covenant. With the what now? God made the covenant with Abraham. Yeah, so yeah. Abraham has some things to do with God. Yeah, yeah. No, like he, and he, he comes through this whole line, this whole genealogy of that's moved through the world in pretty bleak and, and difficult circumstances, along with the joys of life. I mean, life is not all bad, right? It's, there's lots, there's unspeakable joy and gladness, and they're coupled with unmentionable loss, right? And that's, that is Jesus, and that is his people. And the world is good by virtue of the fact that he initiates relationship with us through that. Okay. But that's also not quite enough because God doesn't leave us to that situation. Right? Like, the world as it is, with all its loss, yes, this is the context in which God moves to us. And, through, you know, and so Jesus Christ shows God to be a faithful creator by entering into that, just being with us, suffering alongside us. And, I mean, that's beautiful, but that isn't the final word, right? Resurrection is kind of important, right? I mean, resurrection shows that Jesus Christ has come into the know of God, what he, the limits of our existence in order to, like, confirm God's yes to us. Right. So then the meaning that I I can't I can't explain why certain losses happen, nor should we ever really try to. But we know that the form of life is the way it is in order to undo those losses. Right. So I know losing babies was not good. And I can't explain why that is. And I'm not happy about it, nor should I be. Um, but I know that happens, that sort of thing happens, 
because the world is shaped the way it is in order for God to undo that. Like there's a resurrection. So I'll, I'll see them again. That's not the end of the story. That, no, that implied no was not a hard no. Right? It, it opens the door to a yes that I could never get without that no. And I can't explain why that's a good, like, I can't explain that. Right? And nor should I be, like, necessarily happy about that. Like, in some sort of, oh, that's great, it's all going to be better one day. No, I mean, it's still bad. <laughs> but it's precisely in the fact that that's bad, right, is the undoing of that for once and for all in the resurrection of Christ. And so I think the resurrection opens the door to so much meaning and hope. But what we've got to be careful of is that we don't make the resurrection some sort of escape from the, from the world as it is. I, I think um, I, I like, I like uh, how my um, co-supervisor, uh, former co-supervisor of my for my academic work is a guy named Ephraim Radner. He's going to be here in a couple of weeks, or he's going to be at doing one of the Lenten luncheon series at Advent. But I like how he says this. He says, if the death of Christ is not a true death, but only a moment and a continuous sequence of life itself, if his death does not constitute just the desultory lostness that is found by gleaners of the battlefields, if his death also does not sit before a hospital or cell window and feel the infinite weight of something good disappearing, if his death has not entered into an infinite sorrow, the outcome otherwise unknown, then the actual relationship of father to son and the ordering of the spirit within us is not simply obscure, but horribly so. So, I mean, if, if Christ didn't actually die and that death was not an actual loss, not just to dip your toe into the, you know, the world as it is and like, oh, yep, that was bad. No, if, if the loss of Jesus was actually tragic, it is the end of a story, period, right? That then, then there's no meaning to either how God is related within himself or to even our lives. But because it was such an actual loss, um, in fact, the son truly died did not see corruption, right? He actually, like, and without a prior human claim upon his identity. That's, that's the key thing. We have, in the world we live in, in the world of loss, resurrection is not implied by any of our experience of life. Like, we can't look around the world and be like, obviously there's going to be a resurrection, like, obviously things are going to get better. They're not. Are we glad some things about life have gotten better? Yes. Are we glad we live a little longer than we did 100 years ago? Absolutely. Are we glad, like, there's conveniences of our lives? Sure. But, you know, even with those things have come horror, right? The 20th century is not particularly kind to large groups of people, right? But so nothing about our lives screams resurrection, but the fact that our lives are shaped the way they are with their limits and with the no is good. The result of a good creator because it's in that world, through that world, that Jesus Christ has come and lost everything right, in order to gain 
everything, and then really lost. And so what do we do? I mean, like, that's, I guess, how then do we live in light of these things in the five minutes that we have uh, remaining? What do we, how do we respond to our lives the way they are? Um, yeah, what do you think? What do we do? What do we do with the losses that we encounter or the losses we see around the world? How, should, how do we practically live? We have to accept them. Okay, so there's, accepting is a good word because if, if the world the way it is comes from a creator, that's a gift. Yeah. And it's a gift we receive. So we accept, we take that. We live under that. Um, yeah, I mean, that, and so that has, a, I, mean, I, I was thinking about the you know, famous um, uh, Dylan Thomas poem, right? Do not go quietly into that good night, right? Old age should burn and rave at close of day, rage, rage against the dying of the light. That is not, that's not the response, right? It's to receive, to entrust to a faithful creator. Right, um, it's received grace though, and I think that's important. Grace, if if it's true that it's in in the places of suffering and pain and sorrow where Jesus Christ meets us, right? Where he where where the work of redemption took place within the world as we know it, then that means that's where he's found. So we don't shy away from those places. But we expect that's where God will be, right? Where is God in, in tragedy, right? Our, we're not to meant to think of God as um, checking off his day timer. This was supposed to happen, so on to the next thing to do today. And sometimes that can come across in the way we try to comfort. I've, I've, um, I've told a story before I, I, I was a college minister and one of our students passed away in a, in a, in a hunting accident. And um, I, I mean, I was at his house like a, within an hour after it happened and his girlfriend's there. Just, she's lost everything. And, you know, some kind people from the church were trying to comfort her. And they're like, hey, don't, you know what? God's in control. He had a, he, he had a reason for this. Like, that's not, I mean, that may be true at some level, and, and, but that's not, again, that's not like, oh, oh, at Tuesday at 4 o'clock, kill so-and-so, right? That's not how that works, right? No. Where, where is God in that? I don't think it's right that we think about him as sitting up somewhere kind of over. No, he's in, he's in that. Where's God to be found? Right there. Where was he when this happened? He was with him probably in ways that we could never even imagine, right? Um, so we look for grace in those places. The other thing we do is we worship. Worship has to do with orienting ourselves as creatures to a creator. You're creator, I'm not. And you're good, a good creator, and I know this because of what you've done in Jesus Christ, and this situation's not good, but I will act as a creature to my creator even in that moment, right? Um, 
and I think importantly, that worship is embodied worship. Worship drives us back to our, we don't, that's not escape from our lives. Worship is in the middle of our lives, right? Um, and I think sacraments are an important part of that, by the way. Um, the, we, we have assurance from God that he's good via our baptism and via the ongoing feeding at his table um, where he, he pledges his goodness to us and we participate bodily in that goodness even as we bodily uh, are going through tough things. And then I think, I think also we, we think about dying well. Um, uh, what does it mean to die as a Christian is different from other things. And, and so, uh, you know, Luther, Luther says to acquaint yourselves with death while you live, right? Um, don't rage against, right? Um, but give yourself to the creator who's faithful. Um, and then lastly, I think wisdom is what we need. Because, you know, we aren't meant just to just accept every limitation as it is, right? There are, again, medical advances, not a, not a bad thing, right? Uh, there's so, so we do need, as, as God's people, as his creation, wisdom, and how it is we navigate our limits in a way that's healthy, where I don't spend every minute trying to push back against the limits imposed, but I wisely know how to, to, how to approach those things. Um, and we do so um, with an orientation to the other, right? It's not for me. It's for those around me. Well, a lot more that we could be said, that we could say, sorry, about these things, but we are limited by <laughs> time. Um, and so we will, we will stop. Um, yeah, can we thank the Lord for limitations. Um, can we thank the Lord for his no um, and worship him as our good creator in a way that's not cheap because we are in denial but honest about what it is we're feeling. So Lord do teach us to number our days that we may have a heart of wisdom and as many days have been, have been evil for us would you redeem and make good? Um, Lord, um, in our, even in our comfortableness that many of us enjoy, would we be honest and aware of um, the boundaries that aren't clear and that are troubling? And we would, would we not shy away from those? Would we not miss out on a chance of your grace because we're trying to mitigate our pain? we turn to you as our creator and as your creatures um, and joyfully receive your yes and sorrowfully um, accept the no um, and hopefully look to the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.